This week we're back in the book of Acts after a few week hiatus where we looked at Easter through the eyes of Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel, and ultimately in the eyes of God. We're going to get back into Acts and we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. Um, I'm sure you remember every sermon up to this point, so I don't need to remind you of anything that's happened in the book of Acts, but I will to help out myself. How about? You remember way, way back, we uh, talked about, we didn't talk about, we looked at the ascension. Jesus was taken up to heaven, left the disciples behind, and promised to send someone, the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, we had the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and we saw the the tongues of, of fire, as if of fire. We saw the people filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking foreign languages. Peter stepped up. He said they're not drunk. He explained what was happening as he showed the Old Testament prophecies, and we saw multitudes come to faith. We met a guy named Joseph, who you know better as Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas sold a field and brought the money to the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira were next. They thought it was pretty cool how he was recognized, so they sold a field and brought some of the money to the apostles' feet. And they lied about it to the Holy Spirit. Didn't go well. They got dead. We met Stephen, a man full of grace and power, who had a face like an angel's, and he was stoned to death, which led to a persecution and a scattering as we met Saul. We then saw Simon the magician in false faith. Faith. We saw the Ethiopian eunuch in saving faith. And last time we were in Acts, we met Saul on the road to Damascus. Well, today we're going to pick up as Saul enters into Damascus, and he's hanging out at a house on Straight Street that belongs to Judas. He can't see. I'm going to meet a rather obscure man who we don't know much about. And I was reading this... um, I guess it would be considered a, not a poem, but a a short little paragraph that was written by a man named Tim Hansel. I wanted to share it with you. It very much applies. I think it could be a letter that Ananias would have written if he lived today, after this event that took place on Straight Street. It's called The Road of Life. It says, at first I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was out there, sort of like a president. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike, and I noticed Christ was in the back, helping me pedal. I don't know just when it was that he suggested we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points, but when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds. It was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, paddle! I worried and was anxious and asked, where are you taking me? He laughed and didn't answer, and I started to learn to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure, and when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing, acceptance, and joy, then gave me gifts to take on my journey, my Lord's and mine. And we were off again. He said, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did, to people we met. And I found that in giving I received, and still our burden was light. I did not trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it. But he knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners. He knows how to jump to clear high rocks. He knows how to fly to short and scary passages. And I'm learning to shut up and pedal in the strangest places. And I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face 
with my delightful constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do it anymore, he smiles and says, pedal. Today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the three O's that I found in Acts 9, 10 through 19. The first O is the main O, but there are two secondary O's I don't want you guys to miss. We're going to meet a man named Ananias who was a devout Jew. Uh, Acts 22 also talks briefly about him, and after that he's gone from Scripture. Church tradition tells us that he was one of the bishops in Damascus. We don't know if that's true, um, but he was very likely a leader in the church in Damascus, and persecution was on the way. You read a biblical text, they easily get sanitized. Ananias lived in Damascus, always coming to Damascus to persecute the church, but Saul got saved on the road to Damascus. Ho-hum, right? Think about it this way. Imagine we're sitting here today, and some armed men come in. And they line us up, and they take us downstairs, and they tell us, here's your choice. You deny your faith in Christ, or you're going to be taken away and imprisoned for the rest of your life at best, or we might kill you. That's what was happening in Jerusalem. They didn't have guns like that, but people were coming in where churches were gathering to worship, and they were taking away the believers to persecute them, or the people could deny their faith. So imagine coming here on a Sunday with that potential. Where are you going? Oh, to church. Cool, me too. You didn't hear that so much. Where are you going to church? Oh, you're crazy. You could get yourself killed going to a place like that. Yeah, I could, but you go. Well, Ananias is in Damascus, and the persecution hadn't gotten there yet, but it was on its way coming down the road. And you can envision word coming, you know, how close Paul was getting. Saul at the time. We'll talk about the name change another time. How close he's getting and what's going to happen. And imagine, Ananias knows he's coming, and all of a sudden this happens. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said, Rise and go to Straight Street. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias is going to come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's put ourselves in Ananias' shoes. 1940, Vienna, Austria. A man named Adolf Hitler had come to power in Germany, and he was going to attempt to take over the world. He had come in with his Nazi troops, and they had occupied Austria, and one of the things they were doing were rounding up and killing Jews. Imagine that you're a Jew living in Austria. You want to get your family out. There are Nazis hunting down Jews. And you have just found a place to go outside of town where you can hide with your family. And this is the last night you'll be in your home. And as you're sleeping, you wake up and you're startled, but you feel this strange presence in your room with you. 
can't see anything, but you feel this presence. It's really awkward, and you hear a voice that says, Go to Wickenburg Street, to the house of Franz Kaiser. There you'll find a man from Upper Austria named Adolf Hitler. I want you to go and touch him, and he'll regain his sight. You're sitting there in the middle of the night, a Jew. A voice told you to go to a street you know very well, to a house you know exactly where it is, and Adolf Hitler is in the house. The city is packed with Nazis hunting down Jews. You have lots of friends and family who have been taken away. You'll never see them again. Notice that a voice tells you to go to a house where Adolf Hitler is and touch him so he can receive his sight? What do you do? Let's be serious. You don't just say, I would go. God told me to. First question is, how the heck do you know it was God telling you to do that? How do you know you just didn't have a weird dream? How do you know what happens when you get there? Notice what you were told. It's a house. Adolf Hitler's there, and he's blind. Go touch him. Look what Ananias is told here. He lives in Damascus. The Lord says, Ananias, Ananias says, here I am. And the Lord said, rise and go to Straight Street. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Nowhere does it say that Saul had an interaction with God on the road to Damascus, does it? He said, hey, Ananias, Saul, the one who's coming to mess you all up bad, he's on Straight Street at Judas' house. Why not stop by and say hi? Oh, he's blind, by the way. What would you do if you were Ananias? Now, it's scripture, so we expect to read, and Ananias said, of course, Lord, here I am, send me. And off he trooped to Straight Street, and cared not whether he lived nor died, as long as glory was brought to the Lord. That's what you expect to read. Well, I think Ananias sat there and went, oh, uh, honey, you hear something? Shh, Ananias, quiet, I'm sleeping. Ah, uh, so Ananias did what every good follower of God does, offer a little advice to him. Ananias says, uh, Lord, I've heard about this guy. Uh, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority, in case you didn't know, from the chief priest to bind us all who call on your name. Now, you do realize how silly that is. God says, Ananias, go to this. Oh, well, well, God, hold up. I don't know if you know what's going on here. See, Saul, I, I, maybe you forgot, but this is a bad dude, and, and he's coming to kill us, and, and if I go, it's not going to go well. See, I, I may end up dead. And then we expect God to say, oh, my gosh, Ananias, thank you so much. I completely forgot. Stay where you are. I will take care of this. But notice what God says. God doesn't say, Ananias, you stiff-necked wicked fool. Die, I'll find someone else. How dare you question the sovereign Lord of all creation. And Ananias died. By the way, you know this is a different Ananias than the one who died earlier. There was no resurrection. This wasn't a dude who got, kept messing up. No. This is a different Ananias. God graciously encourages him. He says, Ananias, listen, this Saul, he's, he's a chosen instrument of mine. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God says, Ananias, listen, it's not just old Saul that you know. Something happened. I chose this guy for me to glorify me by proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. Did God have to tell Ananias that Saul was a changed man? No. But he did. Now stop and think about that when you, you think about how God looks at you. God doesn't smile when you mess up. God takes sin very seriously. It's not like, oh, shucks. 
But God is gracious. God is forgiving. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And when it comes to us, his children, he's a perfect father. When you're scared, you can say, God, I'm scared. Now, I'm not saying go the lay the fleece route. You know what that means? Remember Gideon and the fleeces? Well, God, if you want me to go, I pray that you'll put a puddle on my kitchen table that doesn't run off the table. You wake up in the morning, there's a puddle. The next day, well, God, now put the puddle on the floor. Don't, that's, don't, don't put the Lord to the test. But if you doubt and have fear, you can pray and tell God because he knows anyway. And look at the, the grace of God, the, the comfort that he gives to Ananias. So Ananias goes. Let's go back to Vienna. So there you sit, and you have this command, and uh, this vision, and this voice, and it says to you, Hitler is blind because when you go and touch him and he can see again, he's going to save your people. Okay? So now you know something happened. Do you go? There's a lot of risk involved in that, isn't it? Now, Ananias knows something happened with Saul, but he doesn't know how it's going to go when he goes to see Saul, does he? So you're in Vienna, Austria. Make it real. Do you go? Now, I'll dangle a little question out here for you. Ananias went. What happened? What would have happened if Ananias didn't go? Well, God would have sent someone else. Would he? We like to think if Ananias didn't go, God would have sent someone else, and Saul would have had the scales fall off his eyes, and nothing in history would have changed except the fact that Ananias wouldn't have been included in the story. I like that. So, see, if we don't walk in obedience to God, it really doesn't matter consequentially because God will do through somebody else and the exact same thing will happen and our faith doesn't matter. But we don't apply that to other areas, do you? Does anyone have kids and say, ah, screw it. Election, predestination, they're going to heaven or hell. I don't have to do anything. Kids, no church, no Bible, get drunk, have fun, you're going where you're going anyway. Nobody raises kids that way. But we often walk in obedience to God that way, don't we? Well, it doesn't really matter if I share my faith, because whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved anyway, so what the heck does it matter? Let's all just go to hell in a handbasket, and God will pluck us out if he wants to. Now, I don't know what would have happened if Ananias didn't go to Saul. Could God have still opened his eyes? Sure. Would he have? Quite possibly. I can't imagine. But I also know that when it comes to sovereignty, God isn't reacting. God knew what Ananias would do. But I am saying that we need to weigh that responsibility that comes from obedience to God because we can't figure how it plays out. See what I'm saying? Put that on the table and chew on it. It'll confuse you, and that's always good to leave a little confused. But what I want you to get from this first O is obedience. Never be afraid to obey God, even in the most seemingly precarious situations. From Ananias' perspective, even knowing everything he did up through verse 15, this was something filled with risk and uncertainty. From God's perspective, how much risk and uncertainty was involved? Do you realize that? God's not sitting there going, oh boy, angels gather around, he's going, let's see what happens. Oh, Saul, please don't kill him, please don't kill him. Please. God already knew. When God commands us to do something, understand, faith comes into play because we doubt and have reservations and trepidation, and those are emotions that go away in heaven. You do realize that? I imagine angels, if they have glimpses of what's going on, they're sitting there going, what is wrong with them? What? 
God told them to do it. Why aren't they doing it? They have this strange emotion called doubt and fear. Why? Why would, why would they be afraid? Don't they know that God is with them and God told them and there's nothing to fear? Oh no, they have sin too, remember? So they're all screwed up. When God gives us a clear command, we don't need to be afraid. We just need to walk in obedience. How do you know, though, when God's telling you to do something? Do we wake up at night all of a sudden and feel a strange presence and a voice tells us, you know, go empty the refrigerator and light it on fire? Yes, Lord. How do you know? How do you know what God's telling you to do and what God's not telling you to do? Or do we expect to be woken and told? Go to your neighbor's house and tell them right now. Do you go? How do you decipher the craziness in your head? Or maybe something from God in your head? Why did Ananias have this vision? God still does speak through visions today, okay? But that is not his primary mechanism of communication. Read the book of Hebrews. It'll talk about that. In the past, God spoke through the prophets, and he spoke through visions. Today, we have the canon of Scripture. We have the New Testament. Ananias didn't have the book of Acts. It wasn't like he was reading Acts 9. And he goes, my goodness, talk about speaking straight to you. This is me. I was supposed to go to Straight Street, to Judas's house. He didn't have this. Before Scripture, God often spoke through dreams and visions. He still can, and I believe does today, but that's not his primary mechanism of communicating his will to us. It's scripture. So what do you do? You start with what he tells you to do through his word. And sometimes you have a clear command, and you look at doing that, and you say, well, this will go really, really bad. Minor example, if I invite my neighbor to this, I mean, how pathetic is this? Ananias is going to see Saul, and I'm talking about inviting my neighbor, right? Okay, bear with me. If I go, I've got to live with this guy for years to come, and what if I like create an awkward relationship, and then our kids have problems, and this thing can go really bad, God. But I know clearly it would be pleasing to God to have this conversation with him. So you take that tiny, tiny baby step of obedience, and just trust that God knows what he's doing with it. All the excuses? God tells us many ways how to use our time, talent, and treasure, yes? We often say, well, God, look, it's not going to go real well. We're going to have no friends, we're going to be beaten up, and we're going to starve to death if I do what you tell us to do. Do you think God's going, oh, shoot, you're right? Or is God saying, no, trust me. God tells us a variety of things through his word. And what we need to understand is we never have to be afraid to obey God, but we should be incredibly fearful to walk outside of obedience. That attractive beast over there called sin that we keep getting drawn to, that's the scary place, but that seems to be the easy place. The commands of our loving Heavenly Father are where we're to go, trusting, and then we get to rejoice on the back end of it. Our job is not to counsel God, rather it's to be willing to hear from God and to walk in obedience, knowing that we can joyfully trust and fear not, for God is with us. Second, I want to talk about obscurity. We live in a, uh, a bit of a celebrity-driven, me-focused culture, in case you haven't noticed. When we read the Bible, we meet people of big names. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Deborah, Esther, Isaiah, Peter, Saul, uh, John. We go on and on. These big name folks who did big stuff, right? And we're like, yeah, God, make me a champion, a giant of the faith. Like, like Moses, like Paul, like Peter, like John. And it's, it's made worse by the fact that, that we live in a type of culture where bigger always equals better, and we want to have a, a, a broader range of notice and influence. This little thing called Facebook out there, yes, I'm on Facebook. Do you know why Facebook is so successful? 
going to the store. I don't care. But we all think people care what we're doing. We, we want to have a Twitter account with a following like the president. You know? The president says, dog found an Easter egg. Hundreds of thousands of people care. I don't know why. If I say, you know, dog pooed in the house, nobody cares. But I want people to notice me. Look at me. Here I am. We, we have this thing called sin in us that wants glory to come to us. The problem is 99.9% .9 of people will live in relative obscurity in the eyes of the world. Most people are never going to know who you are. They don't really care that much about you. They don't want to know you're going to the store, and that's okay. But God cares. God knows. And God pays attention. So Peter is out there leading multitudes to faith. God is using him in amazing ways, right? People after person after person after person. It's going crazy. It's going wild. And then we meet Ananias. Where was Ananias born? I have no idea. Married? Kids? Don't know. Where did he live? Somewhere in Damascus. What happened after this? No idea. But on this one day, an obscure man I never heard about before and will never hear about again had a command from God and he walked in obedience and just one guy he came in contact with named Saul. Just one guy. And all he had to do was just touch him. And he did it. And we never hear about him again. I mean, Moses had the Red Sea. Boom! He had the manna. He had the, the wars where he held his arms up. He had the tablets. He had the burning bush. I mean, he was, he was up in Egypt as a kid. He came back to Templates. He was big time. If he had a Twitter account, I'm on. But who the heck cares about Ananias' Twitter account? God. Because Ananias, while he lived in obscurity in the eyes of the world, was not obscure in the eyes of God. And God uses the obscure people in amazing ways. You see, take away the big name folks. Even today, and uh, realize, in Christian circles, in the eyes of the greater world, I don't mean better, I mean larger, they have no idea who the, who the big name people in Christian circles are. I remember once, years ago, asking my sister, you know who Billy Graham is? She says, no, who's that? If you don't know who Billy Graham is, you're not probably going to be recognized by the bulk of the non-believing world. But God's kingdom works primarily through the obscure, faithful servants in amazing ways. And as we live in obscurity, most of the time we'll have no idea of the impact we've had in the kingdom of God until we get onto the other side of eternity. You realize that? Let's embrace that. If God seeks to raise us up individually or corporately into a visible part of the body, let's pray that he does it, humbling us along the way and keeping us humble. And if he chooses not to, let's rejoice in the fact that in the eyes of the world we may be obscure, but in the eyes of God we're not obscure, and God does incredible things through people in his kingdom who no one ever hears about. Ananias is a perfect example. And he shows us that in God's eyes, there's no such thing as obscurity. You don't need Facebook to be noticed. You don't need a Twitter account so that people care about you. You have a Heavenly Father who sent His only Son because of the incredible love He has for each and every one of you. You understand that? God knows the number of hairs on your heads. He cares about the sparrows. How much more does He care about you? Think of all those people who wake up and post you know, strange stuff because they want someone to care. They want someone to notice. And realize we all have that somewhere deep down inside of us. But ultimately, fulfillment and contentment isn't going to be coming from people recognizing us or approving of us or applauding us. It's from knowing that God himself loves us 
and delights in us and lives in an eternal relationship with us. Embrace obscurity. If God wants to bring you out for people to see on a grand scale, don't delight in the praises of man. Let God get you there. Don't climb up yourself. Let God bring you there, and you will still find obscurity is a place to be in the eyes of the world. I'll give you an example of it on this last point of one. Never underestimate the value of one person coming to faith. Edward Kimball. You guys know who Edward Kimball is? Nobody? Edward Kimball. How about the date? April 22nd, 1855. Now, I would venture that Edward Kimball and what happened on April 22nd of 1855 has impacted at least a few people in this room, and you have no idea about it. But you don't know who Edward Kimball is, really? April 22nd, 1855? What? Very good. No, not at all. It's intentionally picked because no one knows who it is. Edward Kimball was an obscure man who was faithful in walking in obedience and had the opportunity to present the gospel to one person in particular. And he faithfully did it. And that one person came to faith. That one person was probably about this tall. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. And it wasn't like the multitudes were, were coming to faith at the time. And there was a group that he worked with, and these weren't, you know, your, your kids from good Christian homes. This was a ragtag, motley group. Edward Kimball wasn't recognized for what he did. But he did it in obscurity, he did it in faithfulness to God, and he did it because he recognized the value of one person coming to faith. April 22nd, 1855, a little kid named D.L. Moody came to faith in Christ. Now, if you don't know who D.L. Moody is, Google it. I'm not going to try to sum up his story. There are some wonderful biographies. I could recommend a couple. But D.L. Moody is a man who shared his faith with a lot more than one person and saw a lot of people come to faith through God working with his life. But it all began with a guy named Edward Kimball, a faithful Sunday school teacher who took this ragtag, motley kid and loved him and presented the truth to him and prayed for him. And look what happened. Ananias knew the, the work that Peter was doing and the multitudes coming to faith. Heck, he might have come to faith through the preaching of Peter. We don't know. But I only know of one guy who, who Ananias was used in the process of bringing them to faith. And it happened to be a guy named Saul who did some pretty amazing stuff. God's crossed our paths, each and every one of our paths, with a bunch of people. Often we want to we influence the masses. I'd love to see every person in Chester County presented with the gospel and come to saving faith in Christ. But let's just start with one. The, the next-door neighbor you have, the co-worker, the, the little kid that you have in your house, or the friend from next door in that family. Walk in obedience to God. Take his commands seriously and understand that obedience is the safest place to be. Embrace obscurity. Do you think Edward Kimball is in heaven and D.L. Moody gets He's like, oh, God, come on! Look at all the cool stuff he got to do, and I just got to teach Sunday school? No. But D.L. Moody needed an Edward Kimball. Saul needed an Ananias. Who needs us to walk in obedience to God? Do you ever think about that? It often happens through scary steps. Now, praise God that we live in a time and in a place where you're not going to be physically beaten for sharing your faith. Now, 50 years from now, who the heck knows what's going to happen? I imagine if we keep on the current trend, it might be a little harder to share your faith. But we live in a time where, where we can. I wish I wrote this quote down. Um, 
it was a, a quote referenced, uh, it might have been Piper, talking about how he believes, John Piper, that America is the most difficult place to raise Christian children and for Christians to live. Not because of the persecution we face, but the distractions that we have. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing. The church has never had a problem with persecution. Under persecution, the church has always flourished and grown. Apathy kills the church. Apathy and indifference. Ananias did not have apathy and indifference. He lived in obscurity. He walked in obedience to God, and he understood that even one person mattered. And he went in obedience to God, and he laid his hands on that one person. What would happen for each and every one of us is we began to pay attention to that one person that God has crossed our paths with. And we began to pray for those people, that God would open their eyes to the truth. And we began to pray that God would give us opportunities to share the gospel with them. That we would pray that God would equip us to walk in greater obedience before them. What if we continued to do that? What might God do through us? And what might he then do through them? Does that make sense? So I'm reading this story. The guy gets a little bit of, a little bit of ink in the Bible, but that's it. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. Now notice this. I'm going to wrap up on this part. He is a chosen instrument of mine. He's a chosen instrument of mine. God chose Saul. Do you understand what our job is? It's to go out and find who God has chosen. It's not to make them. It's not to mold them. It's to go out and find who God has chosen. And understanding that, Ananias goes out, so Ananias departed in verse 17, entered in the house, laying his hands on Saul, and what does he say? He says two words to him to start it off. Brother Saul. Don't miss that. Ananias had fear and trepidation and uncertainty, and he's saying, God, uh, this is going to go bad, please don't make me go. He then had a, a greater comfort and clarity from God, and he walked in such obedience that he went into the house. You can see him, knock, 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 and Judas opens the door. Hey, Ananias, we've been expecting you. Oh. He walks into an upper room where this man, he's never seen him before, but he knows about him, is sitting there, probably on his knees, with his head bowed because he can't see, praying. Ananias walks up to him. He puts his hand on his back. And he says to him, the, pers the greatest persecutor the church had known, the man approving the murder and incarceration and, and physical punishment of, of people all over, followers of the way. This same Saul, Ananias, walks up to him, puts his hands on him, not shaking in fear, but rejoicing in knowing who he's next to, and says to him, Brother Saul, Ananias saw scales fall off of the man's face. No other human being in all of eternity ever saw that. Saul didn't see it. He was blind at the time. Luke wrote about it because he heard about it. Ananias got to see the most incredible conversion that had ever taken place when the greatest persecutor of the church had the scales taken off his eyes. Ananias got to see it. Ananias got to be using it because he walked in obedience. 
because he embraced obscurity, obscur embraced obscurity and because he understood the importance of just one person. What might God do through each and every one of us? What might he show us? How might he use us? Perhaps 100, 200 years from now, someone might say, who knows who Rene is? Who knows who Kirsten is? People go, what do you mean? Who knows the date, February 11th, 2015? What are you talking about? But see, we all smile, because we know the story of what happened. And we know the obscure event that no one noticed at the time, but God used in such grand scales. Ananias, an amazing guy. Ananias, an, an amazing example of the power, the grace, and the love of God. Could God have just said to Saul, boom, you are a new creation on the road to Damascus? Yeah. Did he, did he have to blind him and did he need Ananias? Ananias, help me out. I got him almost there. I just need you to finish it off. Did he need that? No. But he, he, he allowed Ananias a part in his work. Why? Because he is a loving father who delights in giving every good thing to his children. He invited Ananias to be a part of his work, and Ananias had a joy that you can't understand unless you get to do the same thing, and we do. God invites us to be involved in his work so we might delight and rejoice in doing what we were made to do. That's what I get from Ananias. Three O's. Obedience, obscurity, and one. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for how you chose to use Ananias. I thank you for the fact that you've recorded these real historical events for us to see. I look forward, Father, one day to, to meeting Ananias in heaven and hearing him tell the story and fleshing out some of those details we don't know. I look forward to, to him giving us the, the pictures of the, the sights and the sounds and the smells of of his walk down that road of Straight Street to the particular house of Judas. I, I love to hear what happened as he walked in and where Saul was and what it was like as he took him to be baptized and how they rejoiced and what they spoke about after Saul was baptized. God, what a, two amazing miracles. One, that Saul came to faith. And two, that you chose to use Ananias, another man who miraculously came to faith, but you chose to use him in the process. God, why you chose to use us in the process of proclaiming your good news to the lost? Why, Holy Spirit, you chose to dwell in us to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment? See, it doesn't make sense to us, God, because we seem to just get in the way. I pray that you would help us to get ourselves out of the way so we might walk more fully in the way that you've prepared for us. Holy Spirit, empower us. Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. Father, use us. Do a mighty work in us and through us, and help us take those small steps of obedience. And as we're faithful and little, I pray you entrust greater things to us for your glory. God, as we live in obscurity at times, I pray that we remember that you see us at all times, that, that you care about us more fully than we can ever realize. And I pray that we never seek to elevate ourselves to receive the applause and notice of men. But if you so choose in your sovereign will to elevate us to a position of visibility, that you would keep us humble along the way and help us to be something people forget about or notice only as a sign, Father, that points to you, to the love you have for the world, to the way you've made so that none have to be lost, but all can be saved who will turn to you, repent of their sins, and walk in obedience to you. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you, God, that we can be a part of the work that Ananias was called to. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see what you are up to amongst us, who it is that you have chosen around us, and give us the courage to walk up and maybe not physically place our hands upon them, but love them, explain to them the truth, and walk alongside them as they become a disciple of yours so they might do likewise. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray all these things. Amen.